0: Welcome to Belief Busters Podcast, where we change the world one belief at a time. And we're dedicating this series to changing the world by looking at what are our beliefs around racism, systemic racism. And I want to give you a voice to the conversation. And so I invite you to the discussion. I'm glad you could be with us on this journey of discovery and awakening. Welcome to Belief Busters. Today we have Reverend Dr. Ariana Platten, who has been referred to as an experiential theologian because she leans toward an understanding of the holy that is based on personal experience and the subjective discernment of reality. Ariana is a business strategist, a spiritual educator, who has traveled the world, explored its cultural differences and human similarities. She has been ordained by Unity Worldwide Ministries and serves as the lead minister at Unity Spiritual Center in the Rockies. Deeply committed to interfaith education and dialogue, Ariana serves as an ambassador for the Parliament of the World Religions leads the Colorado Springs Interfaith Collaboration, and with a panel of clergy from various faiths, she writes for and coordinates the publication of In Good Faith, a weekly interfaith newspaper column offering expert opinions of a spiritual and personal nature. She also hosts a weekly podcast on the same theme. Welcome, Ariana. Thank you, Cherie. I'm so happy to be here. I've just, as I was sharing with you before we started, just really felt a kinship with you and um, just this level of integrity and this willingness to look at what do you believe, challenge your beliefs, and shift accordingly. So, So hear that and know that I see that in you. Thank you. And so I've invited Ariana today to talk about her beliefs around race, Uh, relationships to people in color in general. And um, she shared that she's gotten some new insights and some new awakenings. So we are ready to begin. So I'm going to take you back to the early days. What were your indoctrinated beliefs around race, people of color? So it's interesting. I, um,
1: my father was in the military and I grew up in a military family. And so for the first half dozen years of my life. We traveled and we lived either on bases or around bases. And if you're in the military, the military is filled with people of all different races. There's very little, um, you don't really even notice it because it was part of my all my life. When I was in second grade, we actually moved to Colorado Springs where I live now, although I've moved away since then. But when we moved here, um, we lived right outside the base that, that my father was assigned to. And at the time, I didn't understand that this city is broken up by color. It was then, it is now. But we lived in the black, what is considered the black part of town. Okay. And I went to a school where the majority of the people in my class in second grade, third grade, and fourth grade were people of color. And I didn't recognized, it. until then, it really never stood out to me. It, it, that's the earliest recollection I have of really noticing race. And it was to feel, for me, <clears throat> I felt on the outside of community. Um, there were only a couple of us, I mean, I think there were four kids in my second grade class who were not black. Okay. and. So I, I couldn't, I couldn't find a place to fit in. Um, I, I got a lot of, there was a lot of, um, a lot of difficulty because I didn't speak the same way. I didn't eat the same things. I, I didn't understand it. And it's the first time in my life I also ever remember feeling on the outside,
0: mm. feeling,
1: feeling like there was some difference. So my, my experience is a little skewed by that um, because I, a lot of times it's the opposite way around, Right. Yeah. but feeling on the outside left me feeling not liked, not appreciated, not like I couldn't fit in there. And I think that affected me in ways that I, at that at that age, you know, second grade, you don't think about it till you look at somebody who's six or seven years old. You know, that's, that's about the age seven, maybe going on eight. And when you look at a child that age, being able to have playmates and all of that is important. Oh, it's and vital. So, yeah. But it for me it was just about that feeling on the outside and noticing that it was a there was a
0: line there in the sand that had to do with color. Got it. Did your family have any um thoughts or beliefs around around that at all? That you remember?
1: I don't think that my family um, would even entertain that. My parents were very particular, and I did grow up in the family where we were taught, there is no such thing as color. There isn't supposed to be any such thing as color. People are people no matter what, which obviously we've gotten smarter about us as we've moved into this time. But that's how I was raised. I would have been one of those people who said I'm colorblind because I was raised to believe that that was the right way to be. And as I was there and as I felt on the outside, I would go home and I would tell my mom I felt bullied and I felt picked on and I felt unable to fit in. And I had a really interesting experience. My parents actually, which is such a, I didn't even find out about this until a couple of years ago. I was um, doing well in class and my teachers were not giving me extra work. They were not taking me to the level that I could be at. And my mother called the school and she went to meet with the principal. And she was told by the principal that because, very specifically told that because I was white, my ability to excel in school was hindered by going to this school and that she should find a different school for me. And my mother was appalled. She was so angry that my father put in for a transfer and they left Colorado Springs but not because they needed to do that for me, because they were so angry that anybody would believe that. So it, it's, it was an interesting, like I said, very unique, very unique experience. And my mother never told me that until probably just a couple of years ago when we got into a conversation about race and what's happening in our world today.
0: Wow so that experience that you had as a young child did that shift or what was your belief then after having like not fitting in not not having that sense of belonging and playmates did it skew your thinking regarding race at all well it did but only in the way that it would do for any
1: child i felt like for some reason i wasn't acceptable to people of color so i didn't try and make friends with people of color because I didn't feel like I was gonna, I had already learned at a very young age. And it's the reason that I track that back, um, the reason I can go back to that time is asking myself, you know, there's so many kind of common questions in our culture right now, as we look at this whole racial balance and and the work that needs to be done. And one of those questions is, um, are you the person who walks, who crosses the street if a black man walks down by you, I am that person. I am that person who will cross the street for safety. And and recognizing that makes me look and ask myself, where did I get the idea that I wasn't safe?
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: I that's as far back as I can trace that. And I don't have anything, there was nothing in my family that gave me that background. Like I said, my family was kind of Completely skewed the other way. So, I don't think I realized until recently even that I did that. Wow. And I really Got it.
0: paid attention to it. Wow. So, on your journey, you know, I see you as someone who you're on so many interfaith uh, panels and uh, you're doing so much of that work. You know, I see you as someone who would be a leader in uh, race relations and understanding white privilege and, you know, really shifting the the bar on that. And so what was your process to kind of go through that awakening to where you are today?
1: Well, first I wanna say to you, thank you for thinking I'm awake. (laughs) Uh, I mean that with a very sincere heart. There are so many times in this process that I just feel like I know nothing. You know, it's amazing to me. Um, One of the awakening experiences for me was a couple of years ago here in Colorado Springs. There was a a vandalism done at one of the, the Jewish temples, and it horrified me that it happened. And when it happened whoever did the that good deed, mm. whoever did that went through the neighborhood and they also targeted black families and they they spray painted words on the cars of black families in the neighborhood. So I called the, the head of the, of the NAACP here and said, would you like to join me? I wanna do a rally. I wanna pull people together at the park right outside the temple and I want to make a really large large, and loud public statement that this is not going to happen in our city." And she said, yes. And in three days, in three days, we pulled 600 people together and signs and musicians. And it was an amazing event. And I was so charged up that we did the right thing. And at the end, I said to her,
0: wow, that was
1: awesome. I'm so excited. And I'm so exhausted. And I'm going to go home and I'm going to sleep. I hope you're gonna get to sleep tomorrow. What are you gonna do? And she said, she looked at me with this very uh, matter of fact look on her face. And she said, I'm gonna go and do the same thing I've done for the last 20 years.
0: Puts it in perspective, does it not?
1: Wow. Uh, Again, you know, those moments that you think to yourself, I know nothing. Yep. I have no clue, no clue what people have been living with for how long. And and I hate that. I hate it. <laughs> but through the discomfort, I'm going to stay in it because this is important work and I don't want our world to be this way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It is in that uncomfortability, you know, that change happens. It's, it's in that not knowing that we open ourselves up you know this, that we open ourselves up to possibilities and to being able to listen and to hear, you know, what the needs are and what is ours to do next. So yeah. it's, it's those of us who are like, okay, well, not 100% sure where I should step next, but okay, in this moment. So in the work that you've been doing, what do you believe about race relations today? First of all, I believe it's, it's the
1: most important work we can be doing. Um, there have been some really interesting awarenesses that have come to me when it comes to white privilege in the last in the last couple of years. I've had the opportunity to, to do some work here with the Department of Corrections, and uh, doing that work and understanding the the road into jails, into prisons, understanding the the percentage of people of color versus white people is has been just shocking to me, really shocking. And also understanding the impact of that on community. Right. Uh, working with black pastors in my community and talking with them about going in and thinking I knew what was needed, that I could, could we do this and could we do this? And learning how to slow down and say, what can we do and what do you need? There's a concept, what do you need? Right, has been really important. Um, Some of the, I thought I had great ideas and the, the needs were very simple, very basic needs. Needs that were not hard to fill, but needs that in my world were not even on my radar. Needs like, Bussing to get families to visit people who are imprisoned, mm-hmm. and um, money to be able to buy soft drinks in the lobby. And, you know, there, I mean, very simple and yet so crucially important in the community and so outside my perspective. So, so when you say, you know, what do you think about it? I think we have to listen. I think, I think white people need to stop talking and listen and ask ourselves, how would it feel? I think we have to be willing to address and understand that racism is about our culture, the culture, the white culture, as opposed to the white person. Uh-huh. right? So when we talk about, and and I, even as I speak to you, Sheree, and you are the safest person in the world, everything in me is, is on edge for making sure that I don't say this wrong, or I don't, I don't, you know, because it matters that we're that cautious. It matters because in any other situation, and we know this as ministers, If you're talking to someone who has been repeatedly traumatized, you are going to be so careful about what you say and how you communicate and what actions you take. You're gonna ask lots of questions and you're gonna do everything you can to put that person at ease. And I don't think we as white people have understood yet that people of color have been traumatized over and over their entire life.
0: Correct
1: right? So it's important for us to be very cautious about how we talk, cautious about what we say. Caring maybe is a better word.
0: I think caring is the right word. Absolutely. Because I don't think we need to be treated like eggshells, right? I don't think that that's, that's what we're looking for as people of color. But I think it's more definitely this level of do you hear me? Do you see me? Do you get what I've been through? Do you, you know, can you hold my hand through this process? Can you be, you know, my advocate when I can't say something, because once again, I don't want to be the angry black lady. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so
1: absolutely. There's a, a friend of mine who's a black minister. And he said, I said, help me, help me not put my big old white foot in my big old white mouth again. Help me. And he said, his name is Promise Lee. He said, every time you tell this story, you have to put my name in it. So <laughs> I've, so far I've done really well. Um, he said, you can do two, you can do with, or you can do four. And he said, the problem is too many times white people are trying to do two.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What you want to do is there will be times you need to do four. And most of the time you want to do with, and that has been when, you know, that those very simple guidelines, incredibly important to me. So when you say, will I hold your hand? Yes. Will I stand with you? Yes. What I have to fight in myself because it's part of the whole white supremacy thing is that I need to be your savior. Right. Right. I'm not here to save you. You are fully capable of saving yourself. I am here to stand with you and say, I'm standing right here. See this white face? I agree, yeah. right? I'm standing right here and I'm gonna keep standing right here. And this is not a black issue. This is a community issue. This is a societal issue. This is a cultural issue. And we're gonna do this
0: together. And the deeper level of this work is also understanding that it's systemic, that this is not about the two of us having a relationship and talking to each other. This Mm -hmm. is about a country that has been based on the foundation of having cheap labor that is Black, that supports the the structure. and slavery did a lot of that, and when slavery ended, it was um, shifted into these new laws and these new regulations. Hence, when you talk about like all of the uh, inmates being such a high population of minorities and people of color, mm-hmm. right? Because it's it's like legalized slavery now is is where we are, where where we are at, and it's, shredded the communities, shredded families. Yes. Um, there are so limited role models for these young kids coming up angry and understandably angry.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so it's it's the, the systemic devaluation of people of color, this um, system of just biased criminal justice. I call injustice, but that's okay. And you know we've created the situation that we find ourselves in based on the laws and how we've skewed um, the value of people. Well, and not just
1: I not just have we created it, we've inherited it. So we don't understand. We are not taught that the police force was first designed to round up runaway slaves. Correct. And because that's not taught in history, we, we as white people, when I say we, mm-hmm. uh, because I don't know if it's taught in black culture, but in white culture, we're not taught that. And so, because we don't understand that, we don't see the, the, the kind of inbred injustice, the kind of inbred idea of that work, that the work was formed around that and has grown from that base. We don't. We don't see that. There's so much about what we're taught. You know, I, I grew up thinking that we were a country that had had a civil war, so that this problem didn't exist anymore. That we have an Emancipation Proclamation, so right, we're okay, and that you know we have we have equal opportunities in the job world. We're okay. We have all of this. It's embarrassing to be. 59 years old, which is where I am today, and learning how much I did not understand, how much I was never taught, and how much I was able to move through my life and not even see
0: what I'm seeing now. It's shocking for me. All right. Join us next week as we conclude our interview with Reverend Ariana Platin. Thank you for joining us on this exploration of belief systems. I hope this gives you permission to change your beliefs and subsequently the world. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast and leave a review wherever you listen. You can reach me at info at preachitsister.com. I've also written a book, Turning Your Why Into Why Not, that gives you practical resources and steps that you can take to continue on the journey of exploring what your belief systems are. I look forward to seeing you next time on Belief Busters Podcast. See you on the flip side.